Thank you, Jessica. Appreciate that. Good morning. So I understand today is a Super Bowl day. I also understand that it is the most uh, television watched event of the year. It's a terrible way to put it. Uh, How do you put it? It's a a day that more people than any other time of the year watch television. And I also read where uh, if you have enough money, you can advertise your product during the Super Bowl on a commercial. And for 36, I mean, so for 30 seconds, if you have anywhere from four to four point five billion dollars, you can show the world your product. That's a lot of money. But when everybody, uh, you know, almost everybody who has a TV is watching that event, then uh, apparently it's worth it. Not a lot of people have four billion dollars to spend on advertising in their in their company budget. But um. It made me just ponder, as I heard that yesterday, ponder how would, if Jesus came in this age, how would he have used the media to his advantage? Would he take up an offering for a Super Bowl commercial so that everybody in the United States and other countries could know that he is the way, the truth, and the life? I have no idea. It just popped into my head. Frivolous. Well, we are... Once again, turning to the book of Psalms to feed our souls. And as you know by now, the Psalms are what we're calling God tunes. They are the worship book of the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament saints loved these songs. They knew these songs, memorized them, and sung their hearts out with many of these songs as a way to worship the Lord. And the last psalm we looked at was Psalm 19. And it's a psalm where David talks about the authority of the word of God. And it is the one rule over which it's the truth, the truth, the one rule that rules them all, kind of like the one ring that rules them all. God's truth is the truth of truths. And then we also saw in that psalm the effects that God's word has on people It can be absolutely glorious in the sense that when we first embrace it as believers and live according to the word of God, it begins to clean up our messy lives. And we love it. This is great, God. I mean, your word actually works. It's very practical. I'm not as miserable as I once was. And then we studied a little more and we and we realized it it, it's uh, it's terrible in the sense that but we can't obey all of it. What do we do with that? It's it's a can't obey all of it all of the time. I can do maybe some of it some of the time. And so we can also feel the sense of the wrath and condemnation of God. But then we have the salvation of God, the redemption of God in God's word, whereby Christ is our means of redemption. And as believers, God's law is no, no longer something that just hovers over our heads is something that we can't fulfill and we can't do. But because Christ has set us free from that. Now we can, out of pure love and gratitude, express our worship to God by obedience to his law. Because we want to do that and we want to show him our love. A lot of the psalms that we have looked at so far are praise psalms. And if you wanted to break this, if you had to break the psalms, all 150 of them into three major categories You would come up with there are songs of praise, 
There are songs of thanksgiving. And then there are also songs of lament. Now, each of those categories, of course, could be broken down as well. But if you just had to force them into three basic categories, that's what we found. And so far, we have looked primarily or really exclusively at songs of praise found in this book. I'm going to switch gears a little bit this morning. And we're going to look at a psalm or really two psalms I've grouped together of lament. But the Psalms are a, the Psalms are an awesome book of the Bible. And it's probably one of the most popular books of the Bible. And it's for good reason. The Psalms are very, very unique in that they really probe into our souls. They really talk about uh, any experience that we may have had in the Christian life. They're unique in the sense that though... There are just a limited amount of authors of the Psalms, and they were really written in just a small window of time and history. And yet they speak to all of humanity in every age. They touch on everything that has ever happened or any condition of the soul that has ever happened or will happen. And so a lot of times we find ourselves reading the Psalms. We can go to the Psalms. And a unique thing about this book is though... Each psalm does have a historical context. You can almost just start anywhere in any psalm. And sooner or later, you're going to be reading about yourself. You're going to you're going to tap into the condition of your own soul. So every experience is there, whether it be joy, whether if I'm experiencing anger right now, uh, total delight. Life just could not. Have you ever had days where just life couldn't even you can't even imagine it getting any better? I've had those days and then those days where you just can't even imagine it getting any worse. All of these expressions and emotions are found in the lyrics of the psalmist. Uh, Anger, anxiety, fear, trust, of course, praise, contentment, despair, vengeance. Everything is in there. John Calvin wrote an excellent commentary on the psalms. And in it, he says, the Psalms are a complete anatomy of every part of the human soul. We have today in our modern technology uh, devices that you can actually plug into your cars. And it will give you code readings and tell you exactly what is wrong with your vehicle. Um, It kind of takes the guesswork out of it. And by telling you what is wrong with it, it's also, in essence, telling you what's not wrong with it. You may have thought, oh, it may have been this. No, not according to the code reader. It's a a diagnostic tool. And the Psalms very much serve as a diagnostic tool to our souls as we read them. And hear the struggles and the joys of the psalmist. So perhaps our soul will be diagnosed this morning in the psalms that we will read. And I'm going to group two psalms together. Really, you'll see that they go together. Psalm 42 and 43. It's right there in the bulletin. And they bring out a condition of the soul. Condition of a Christian experience. That I think is very important. But not often spoken about. Um, but is probably more common than we might think. Among Christendom. So let's go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and read both of these psalms in their entirety. Psalm 42. 
to the choir master, a mascal of the son of Korah. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. Oh, God, my God. Why are you so cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, as you can see, I read them together because they really fit well together. I think they were meant to go together. And it, I don't think it's too hard to see a theme that really just presents itself as we follow the reasoning of this man of God. And it reveals a condition of his soul. And that's really all I want to spend time on this morning is talking about this certain condition of the soul. And remember, when he talks about his soul in the Old Testament, he's talking about his whole being. So when the Old Testament talks about your heart, your soul, your mind, it's all one thing. We're really all one package. It's not three different parts. You, you can't really uh, use your just your intellect or just your emotion or just your will without them being interconnected. They all ping off of each other. And they're supposed to be that way. It's the way God created us. We don't always use them right. We can go overboard one way or the other. But we are supposed to be interconnected. That's how God created us. The emotions, the mind and the will. Sometimes I read Christian literature where it talks about uh, letting your mind go and your all and all your own thoughts go. Uh, uh, trying to die to that. Get them out of your head so that you can just hear the voice of God in your heart. And that's not a Christian teaching. If you think about it, why, why would God want me to empty my head? When he's given me thoughts, he's given me a brain. It's not that we need to empty those. It's the we, we need our emotions and our intellect and our will to all come under the submission of God. 
But we don't want to get rid of one or the other. Like a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of teachers, teachings try to get us to do that. But when we're redeemed, all of the whole person is redeemed. It's all good. It's all created good. We just have the duty to be self-controlled. What's the condition of the soul in this psalmist? Well, it's what I'm calling the parched soul. I mean, he is thirsty. He is spiritually dehydrated. Something is terribly missing in his whole person. He describes it as his soul, but it's his whole person. And, And the thing that he just is longing for so very deeply that's missing is the presence of God. He's got a lot of things in his life, but the one thing right here that he's parched for, his soul is absolutely longing for, is the presence of God. My, my soul thirsts for God, the living God, verse 2. When shall I come and appear before God? Verse 9, why have you forgotten me? And then 43, 2, why have you rejected me? So, so he's feeling this. It's, it's heavy upon him. He can't, he can't escape it. It's, it's the unthinkable has happened, and that is... Here is a a believer that just can't even feel or sense God in any way like he used to. It's like God is just he's just disappeared and he's begging God, come back to me. I want your presence. I long for your presence. All of the goodness that I used to benefit from that that you brought into my life. It's it's gone. Where are you? Have you forgotten that I'm down here? So he, the, the, the closeness, he's feeling very alienated to God. And, and he wants that safe feeling. I mean, we know that what the presence of God brought into our lives. It's, an, it's, it's a feeling of con, con, incredible contentment many times and just safe knowing that God's so sovereign. And no matter where you are, he's got your back, so to speak. I mean, if, if you're an unbeliever, you don't know what that feels like, but believers do. And, and you know that he works everything for our good. And so when the terrible things happen, you, you, you can put meaning behind it and you can get through it. And all of that's not there for him. It's, it, he's a very, it's a very confusing time. So his soul is parched. And that one thing it doesn't have is God. It's, it's the presence of God. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Maybe to differing degrees where you're just wondering, it's like God disappeared. I mean, you know what it feels like for him to be there and, and he's not there. I know that uh, if you haven't experienced this, I hope you never do to this extent, but it's very possible you will at one point in your Christian life. I would venture to say this would come probably later in your Christian life. Not, I don't know that God would put new believers through this, but he certainly could. But I think this, as we will shortly see, this guy, this psalmist is a mature Christian, a mature believer. And it is this condition that many times it catches us off guard because we don't expect God to do something like this in our lives. So it's been about two years ago now, in 2015, I, 
I came before you and addressed the whole congregation and asked for prayer because I was going through a very spiritually difficult time. And uh, it, it turns out that a lot of my struggle is what the psalmist is explaining here. It's a spiritual drought. And it was very, very frustrating. And it was very, very alienating. Uh, and the Lord kind of warned me in 2015 that this is going to be a tough year. And I shared that with a few folks. But I didn't know what God meant by that. What does that mean? This is going to be a hard year. It could mean so many things. And that's all I all I knew is that that I had this sense. And I thought, well, how hard could it be? I'm really tight with God. Does that mean I'm going to lose material things? Lord, what does it mean? Is it I'm going to am I going to lose health? What, what kind of difficulty? And it turns out what I what I lost was the presence of God in my life. I mean, what do you do with that as a believer that lives for the presence of God? It's very, very frustrating, very, uh, very difficult. I didn't know it was coming, so I didn't know how to prepare for it. It was a new experience for me. And quite frankly, I, I can't say that I'm really fully recovered from it. It's been a very, very slow recovery where the presence is, is being rebuilt. Whatever God is, is wanting to rebuild in my life, it's just been a, a week by week thing. Um, there's still some frustration and confusion there. But it, at least at least I'm kind of on my way back up, so to speak, and and not down there. But it, it was a feeling of tremendous loss. And there's not a whole lot of Christian books on this condition of the soul. I mean, hey, this is the upbeat culture, right? We want to read only positive things. Get rid of all the negative in your life. Another new age teaching. Get rid of all the negative things that drag you down in your life. Just surround yourself with positive things and positive people. I mean, Christian life is supposed to be an experience only of joy. Just one emotion, just joy. Not anger and depression and anxiety. That's not a part of it. You don't, you don't see a lot of Christian writing on the despair of the soul where the presence of God is missing. But it's very, very important here and it's very real. And... Uh, the psalm kind of takes us down, but it's, it's going to lift us back up. Now, this is a two-part series, so we're just going to stay down all month until we can hear the second part of it. And there's some truth to that. Because I just want to look at the part soul. Next time, uh, we will look at possible causes and then remedies. So we'll pop out of it. Uh, I might, I'll close with a little ray of hope, but, but this is just real. And, and I'll tell you, it's also, this psalm is incredibly refreshing. It's informative, but it's also refreshing. And right in it, just with the, the parts so are incredible um, moments of, of hope and joy. So if we give ourselves to this psalm and let God do his work, we will certainly benefit from it this morning. And, and I like that it doesn't just diagnose the condition of the soul, but... The own psalmist um, mentions possible causes and also remedies to this condition. It's all right here in these two psalms. So it's it's a beautiful thing. So forgive me if it's a little frustrating that I I mean, we could do both psalms uh, or both parts, but we would be here a while on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, you know, we need an opportunity to. We don't want to miss that, right, for the sake of. 
godly teaching. I'm, and I'm, I'm putting guilt, undue guilt. No, we have this here. So let's just look for now at the, the conditions. So who, in order to understand this part, so let's get to know this guy at least a little bit. There are some hints here because I think it's helpful. Uh, he's the writer of a psalm, which is awesome, but he's not David. David wrote a lot of psalms, but there were other authors there in, in the 150 psalms that we have. And he is a son of Korah. And that's a sermon within itself. Incredible. If you do some research on Korah. But just to make a long story short, Korah it was a contemporary of Moses. He's in the wilderness with Moses. Uh, he's a Levite. And um, so he has temple and worship responsibilities. But he decides that that's not good enough. And, uh, you know, I guess to, to kind of for, to put it in my interpretation or my terms, he's he's upset at Moses. It's kind of like Moses, you're bossing everybody around who died and made you God. I mean, why do you get to be the only one to tell us what to do and what it means to worship God? And that's holy and that's not. What's up with this? I mean, we're also anointed, right? And so there was rebellion in the camp. And he didn't respect these leaders. He wanted a piece of the pie. And so Moses says, okay, let's just settle this. We can't have this. So we're all going to get uh, our censors. Of course, they had priestly duties. We're going to get our censors. We're going to put the incense and the coals in it. And we're going to stand before the temple of God. And we're just going to see what God has to say about all this. And so there were about two, turned out to be about 250 of them to do this. And Moses and Aaron had theirs as well. And they present themselves before God. And, and God and, and time goes by. And um, I think this is in Numbers, or Exodus 16 or, or Numbers 16. Uh, but anyway, time goes by and God basically says, uh, let's do a little separating, separate yourselves. And so they separate people. Not not all the rebels actually showed up for this meeting. And anyway, you have the families. Basically, they're at their tents. So Cor and his family and the other two guys. And um, so God, through Moses, says, uh, you might want to step away from their tents, guys. And so. Cor and their families, all their possessions, the tent, you know, it's on the ground, it's camped out there. And um, Moses says, okay, here's how we're going to find out. If these guys just die kind of a natural cause, you know, they get sniffles and die of the flu or whatever, then uh, I'm basically in the wrong and I'm not the leader that God's called me to be and I have no right to be bossing you around. But if they die of a supernatural death, then you'll obviously know this was from the hand of the Lord. And guess what happened? Well, at that time, something that had never happened before, the, uh, the ground literally grows a mouth under each tent. It opens up, swallows the tent, the people, all the possessions in it, all three of these, and then grows back over as if there was never a tent there. Imagine that in the turf outside. I mean, they're gone. The ground swallowed them. So everybody's like, ah. Uh... Moses, reporting for duty, sir. Now, some of Korah's progeny survived. And throughout the history of Israel, they, they just pop up every once in a while doing wonderful things and ministering to God. What a little message within a message, right? I mean, you, you, maybe you had a stinky ancestor that rebelled against God. And yet here are the sons of Korah being used by God to write beautiful lyrics and music and to lead the throng in possession, uh, processions of worship. So that's who 
this guy is. That's a little bit about his um, his history there. Of course, he's in the days of David now. Uh, the, the sons of Korah, being Levites, they had still had temple duties. They still served and ministered to the Lord in those ways. And the way David employed them was instrumentally. Um, and so they would play music. So this guy was a musician. And also a lyricist. He wrote songs. And uh, he actually was not just a, you know, a musician... But he also was a worship leader here, he tells us. So uh, that, that was his role there. He had long hair, he never combed it, psychedelic t-shirt, hipster pants, the whole deal. He, he was a worship leader in the days of, uh, of David. In verse 4, he's talking about, he remembers how I, I would pour out my soul, I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts, songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. So not just a, a, a skilled musician, but the guy can sing and he can even lead others in songs of praise. Um, so he's the guy that would lead the singing, one of them. So, yeah, a little louder, and now let's sing the chorus again, and then verse 1 again, and go back into this and all that. And he would lead the entire procession. Now, the way they did it was a little different than what we do it here as far as starting their, their, um, their times of worship with songs of praise. Now, we, we just come, we gather, and we talk. And we talk, and we talk, and we talk. And then uh, uh, 10 or 15 minutes beyond time... The guys will start playing music to get us into our chairs. And then we get the idea, hey, it's time to stop talking and fellowshipping. And now it's time to worship the Lord. And eventually we all wind up singing in unity. Well, in this day, what, before they ever even came to the sanctuary, you didn't, just, you didn't just come to the sanctuary talking. You came to the sanctuary singing already your praise song. You started outside in the courts. You gathered out there and you approached. You didn't even just come in and say, God, what's up? You approached him with songs in an attitude of praise. That's how they did it. So you were led. And, you know, maybe someday we should go out to the end of the driveway and just sing all the way here. And that probably wouldn't be good because that's a long way and we'd all be hoarse. Maybe we should just go out to the parking lot one day and gather and sing and enter the building with a procession where we're already in an attitude of praise. Hmm. So they were led and he was a part of that. Well, for whatever reason, he's parched. He is away from God. Verse six, my soul's downcast. Uh, I remember you from the land of Jordan and, and um, from Hermon and Mount. He's away from Jerusalem. He's away from the temple. Um, don't know why. And he's really bummed about it. It could, it could be, you know, maybe he was taken captive. Uh, maybe he's visiting family. We, we just don't know. Could be a lot of reasons. We just know that he is just in a bad, bad spiritual place. He's up in northern Israel now. And. So he's describing this experience that he's going through. And he's saying, my, my soul is panting like a deer pants for water. And 
I've mentioned to this to you several times, but there was a time, I mean, I literally saw a deer pant in real life, and it was actually right out here by this fence, and it was during hunt, hunting season, and it had been, it was a little teeny thing, and it, the dogs had been running it all morning, and it outran them and got over here and just kind of spread it all fours out, it was, I mean, tongue hanging out, and it was panting, um, but that wasn't because it needed water, it was, you know, it was kind of out of breath. What's this, what this is describing in, in that kind of climate when you're talking about a deer panting for water, he's talking about a drought because that's what gave way to these conditions. He, there's no water to be found. That's why he's panting for it. So he's describing that. And it's, it's a dark place. It's, everything is parched. And he, and he brings that, that metaphor into his own soul. And he's saying, my soul is parched. It's like... I, I can't, there's, there's not even a drop of God's presence for me to enjoy, to enjoy to get any kind of relief for the dryness that I am feeling in my soul right now. And it's a very appropriate metaphor because, um, well, animals, I mean, animals, obviously, they need water and they have enough sense to get it. You know, animals, they don't do this, the human thing. They're not like, hey, we need to go on a diet so we can get into our pants and, and, and look better. They, if they're hungry, they eat. and They eat the right amount. If they're thirsty, they drink. But we humans, we don't always have that sense. And sometimes we get dehydrated. Uh, my dad, the reason that he was in the, found himself in the hospital was because he, he didn't realize he was doing this. Um, but he wasn't drinking enough fluids. He wasn't drinking enough water. He was avoiding them. And, and week after week after week, he was depriving himself of the hydration that his body needed. And lo and behold, he sits on the couch and puts his head back to take a nap. And had my brothers not found him, he would not have woken up. Because what happens when you are that dehydrated is your, your organs begin to shut down. They don't function. And so his, he didn't even realize it, but his organs had begun to shut down. And he found himself in the hospital and rehab. And I appreciate your prayers. And by God's grace, he's bouncing back now. He's not back like he was before. But a lot of people don't snap out of that. And he's 90. Uh, he's, he's a little... And his brain you know, didn't get the oxygen it needed and so forth. And uh, his mental status was a little scary to me. When I saw that there were some simple things he just couldn't figure out. I mean, this is a brilliant man. I'm not... Wasn't used to seeing him... Uh, not be able to just know everything and figure everything out. It was very scary, but that's what happens. Things begin to shut down. And, and the psalmist is feeling so spiritually dry that, that the, the feelings of his spirituality are, are beginning to shut down. Uh, life is becoming blah. It's, it's becoming tasteless. When the Bible offers this metaphor of water, it, again, that's a beautiful metaphor because... Like Jesus said to the woman at the well, you're there to get something to drink. But if you drink the water I offer you, you'll never thirst again. And it turns out that this woman was very, very thirsty because Jesus goes on to tell her, um, you've had five husbands and you got a boyfriend you're shacked up with right now. So in other words, you're really thirsty for something, aren't you? Something is really missing in your heart and soul. And you're trying to get it out of relationship with guys. And you know what? Twenty husbands won't do it. Because you can't find it. 
20 boyfriends won't do it. You, you can't find what your soul is so thirsty for in those kind of relationships. If you drink the water that I offer you, you won't be thirsty like that anymore. And that's the human condition. We, we thirst for God. We don't always know what we're thirsty for, but we're thirsty for something. And we have a tendency to think, well, that felt good. Let me get more of that. That'll quench this desire I have. Uh, more money in, in, in my bank account. Surely I won't be anxious or have a worry in the world anymore. And we, we try to get more of the things that make us feel good. But yet there's still that something missing. Because these things were never designed to quench the core of our hearts. Because we weren't created in the image of money or created in the image of relationships or created in the image of God. And we need God in that void to fill it. So water is this, it's the refreshing thing, the symbolism that comes and just moistens all the dryness. And that is Jesus Christ. He is like a river of living water that never stops flowing. Now, this psalmist, obviously, he's a believer. He's a mature believer. He's not a, a young believer. He has been tried and tested and fit to be a worship leader. He's found God. He's found God to be wonderfully refreshing to him. And now he feels like God has left him and he really, really wants him back. Uh, things aren't like they used to be. You know, his prayers are dry. His devotional life is dry. The scriptures aren't jumping off the page like they used to. His instrument, his song playing, his lyrics, it's, it's just all lifeless. It's tasteless. It's, it's blah because God is not there. He hasn't had a spiritual goosebump in months because the presence of the Lord just is absent. And he's wondering, God... Why? I mean, why? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? Have you ever, like, literally felt rejected by God? Like, God has said, you're on your own now. Mm-mm. Can't have me right now. And so his life is hurting, and, and part of it is kind of growing numb to these things. Harp strings don't sound like they used to. And the beautiful blue sky in, this, in northern Israel is, is not as refreshing as it used to be. I mean, nothing is the same because you are not in it. Winter without Christmas, uh, C.S. Lewis would say. And he's saying, God, where are you? I just want my life back. The life I gave to you, I just want it back. I remember in... During my time of drought, uh, here, here's, I wish I would have had this two years ago. I don't know why in God's providence I didn't. But for whatever reason, this psalm just is, is such a description. And I wish I would have had it two years ago. Maybe whatever. But so here's, here's the way I felt. Uh, you know, you give your life to Christ. And, and you put your faith and your trust in him. And you know you can't do it without him. You know, it's a Christian life. You can't do it without God. And you want as much of God as you can get because you've tasted, you've seen that he's good. God is absolutely awesome. So I'm following him and follow him throughout my Christian life. And it brings me to this point and this point. And, and, um, and I'm totally dependent on him. Never, ever did I think in my mind, oh, I, I got this, God. I don't need you. Never. 
So I'm walking this path that he has for me farther, farther out. And then, lo and behold, I find myself in ministry. And then I find myself as a pastor and I'm a shepherd. It's kind of like I get to the edge two years ago and then I look around and things don't feel right and they don't look right. And I look back and God's not there. And he's kind of been like pushing me out here. I wouldn't have gone here by myself and he's pushing me out here. And I look, I'm like, hey. You push me out here. I'm following you in total dependence and faith. And now you disappear. How, how am I supposed to operate in what you call me to if you're not even with me? Isn't don't they go together? That's what I experienced. Now, how, how do you shepherd? How can I shepherd your people when you don't shepherd me? It, don't aren't you supposed to flow through here? And it was dry. It was dry. There was nothing. You know, poor Lisa, she heard she heard the, the windings of the psalmist through all this time. And, um, you know, we, we had many conversations about this. I don't know what to do here. I feel forgotten. I feel forsaken. And I can't see for the life of me how this could ever even be in God's story for me. How could this be the will of God where life is all about God and yet he is not palpable? He's not there. So, yeah, downcast, hopeless. So that's this psalmist's condition. But I want to point out something very important before we close, and that is what's not here. What, what's not the condition? Here's what he doesn't say in this psalm, which most other psalms of lament include. What we do not find in this diagnosis is... Words of repentance. And there's so many psalms. Psalm 51. A lot of the psalms of relent are, God, where are you? You've forsaken me. You're not there anymore. It's terrible. I'm wasting away into nothingness. And I confess my sin to you. And I bear my soul before you. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And then God's presence come back. Comes back and you're restored. And it's a beautiful thing and it happens all the time. And God is so merciful. He's like, yeah, you messed up. You repented. Come on back. He just takes you right back into the family, you know, back into his arms. Loves you like nothing happened. God is just incredible like that. But what do you do when that's not the alienation? That's usually it. It's usually it, isn't it? If we're if we're dry, it's our own fault. We're not we're doing something wrong. And we don't find that in this psalm of lament, that that big sin. And yeah, sin absolutely will do this to us by its very nature. It alienates us from God. Um, That's how could it not? If you I mean, it just. Practically speaking, in real life relationships, if you do something, your spouse, your friends, whatever, you know, if you do this, that you will offend them. It's it's been made very clear. If you act in this way, behave in this way, say this, it's very hurtful, very offensive to me. And you do it. You can expect some alienation in a relationship. It's just the way life works. 
And if we do this to God, we can expect alienation in the relationship. God's a person. But what do you do when there's not that big sin in your life that you can remove and then feel God afresh again? You know, you've been resisting it. Finally, you come to repentance. And it's, I mean, God is so incredible with his forgiveness. He really does just scoop us right back up and, and, and we just press on. We learn our lessons. But he doesn't keep condemning us with it. And there's a sense in which, and I remember talking to Lisa about this. I'm like, I, I, I mean, yeah, I have sin in my life, but there's not that one big sin. I, don't, I can't repent like I used to and, and get God back. I'm not in control of it. What do you do when there's not even something you can do? And for a long time, I did the right, all the right things. Eventually, I, I just kind of started backing off because it seemed fruitless. All the right things seemed fruitless. But the psalmist is not repenting of a sin. There is no sin here to repent of, which means... It is possible to feel far from God even when we don't have that big sin in our life. As a part of the Christian experience. I think that's important. Because many times that's our go-to. Okay, God, show me my sin. And as a pastor and as Christians, brothers and sisters, we're supposed to counsel one another, encourage one another, spur one another on, convert Confront one another, confess their sins to one another. So if somebody comes to you or somebody comes to me and they say, I'm dry, I'm not growing. Uh, God is far from me. Naturally, the first thing we're going to think is, tell me about your life. Tell me about your day. What are your habits? Are you in God's word? What's your prayer life look like? Because obviously there's got to be a sin that is alienating you from God. And that's that's a good, wise thing to do. But that's not always the case. Uh, Look at Job. I mean... Uh, Job's friends were like, Job, Job, look at your life. It's a wreck. It's a mess for crying out loud. Stop being so self-righteous and saying there is no big sin in your life and just repent and be restored to God. What is wrong with you? Claiming your innocence. And at the end of the book, Job has to plead for God to not smite them. Because God is angry at those three friends. For giving him bad counsel. And I just say that because, yeah, most of the time that's it. But life, especially the Christian life, it's just not always that simple. Sometimes it gets more complex than we want it to. And a little spiritual checklist doesn't always solve all of our problems. And bad counsel can be, can be dangerous. So we, we just want to not jump to conclusions sometimes as we help one another. So, what about repentance if we don't feel like there's sin in our lives? Is that a good thing to do? Uh, Yeah. Even though there might not be that big sin in my life, should I still repent? Yeah. Why? Because uh, there's always sin in our lives. And the Lord, even in his prayer, forgive us our sins, our debts, as we forgive those who sin against us. And the idea is, yeah, we're going to offend God. And we... It's a relationship thing, and we need to confess that. We don't just go on like, well, I'm cleansed of my sins, so I'm going to sin, and it doesn't affect my relationship with God. It doesn't work like that. It does affect our relationship with God. 
So it's a good thing to repent. And also, let's just say maybe we don't know of any sin in our lives and the drought comes upon us. More than likely, we're going to sin in our response to the drought. That's what I did. I sinned in response to the drought. You know, you get angry at God or you react wrongly. And we'll talk a little bit about this next time. But you say, uh, well, I'm not getting anything out of it. Why should I still have my devotion? The whole, in, in the whole reason, you know, I, I want to return on my investment. I gave my life to you. I trusted you. And I'm expecting you. And when I don't get you, then why do it? I'm not getting anything out of church. I'm not getting anything out of reading the Bible. I'm not getting anything out of worship. Why should I do it? Huh. That's a sinful response. We'll look at that next time. But that's wrong response. A whole wrong way of thinking. Consumerism. So, yeah, we need to repent in these times, even if we can't put our finger on a specific sin. So the takeaway. Yeah, maybe we aren't doing anything particularly wrong that God brings to our attention for the alienation. It still can be there. It still can be real and it still uh, can be from the Lord. One of my points next month will be because God. That's it. Uh, because God isn't so always so simplistic and because God is God and because God can put us on these paths and, and we don't always have to know what God's up to. He doesn't owe us that. But it's always right and it's always good. We know that much. Well, let me just, let me just uh, so we're not left too hanging, but just a few more minutes here, um, just a little ray of hope. So what does the psalmist do? What's one of his remedies if you find yourself with a parched soul? We read this psalm. What's he doing for himself to, to get himself out of this terrible, terrible time of thirst? Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I'll praise him again. Now, look, this seems it's so simple. It's profound. What he is doing here. As he is, he's talking to himself. He's talking to his soul. Hopefully not out loud because it would drive me crazy. But because uh, then you, what? Are you talking to me? No. Talking to the Lord. Oh, talking to myself. So he's talking to himself. And, and he's saying, you know, man, I, I've, I've never been so low. I don't know about this God thing anymore. So that's the, that's the thing, the thoughts that he's coming. And he's talking to himself. You know, buck up, boy. Put your hope in God. We'll take your hope away from him. If there's ever a time you need to hope in God, it's now. Don't let yourself fade away like this. So he's giving himself a pep talk. And here's the principle. And I'll talk about this more. And I love a quote. I'll save for next time from Martin Lloyd-Jones. But we should not always do uh, let. We should not always let ourselves just listen to our souls. Sometimes we have to do the talking. If we just sit there and listen and listen to our own thoughts more and more and more, that's not good. We can find ourselves. We need to speak truth to ourselves. So the, the same soul that is in despair is saying to the same soul, look, hope in God. God hasn't changed. He's still the same God. 
Is it really possible that he has forgotten you and forsaken you like you think you're experiencing? There's a different way to look at this soul. Many times we just sit there and take it. We just sit there and listen to the thoughts. And look, we don't always, we love ourselves, but we don't always give ourselves correct counsel. Hence, not listening to the new age teaching of just look into your heart. What does your heart want? And that's a passion there that you need to follow. Uh, we, we don't tell ourselves what's true. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy. So do the talking, not just the listening. Don't be a pushover to your own thoughts. And let your own thoughts be your downfall. Tell yourself what you know is true about God and act on it and Live on it. So that's just a sneak peek into our part two. But I pray God would bless this word to our hearts and our souls. And that no matter where we are this morning, as we worship him, as we come to the Lord's table, that that we would talk truth to ourselves and enjoy and be refreshed by the living God who dwells among his people. Amen. Let's uh, let's worship. Lord this morning. Worship leaders, lead us in a procession of praise.